Welcome to Season 2 of Ing Podcast, a production of Menno Media's Leader Magazine. What does it mean to authentically follow Jesus? Each week, Ing Podcast invites you to join us on a journey. Join us as we talk with people of faith who are creatively thinking, growing, and being. People who are reimagining and exploring what it means to enrich faith in a complex world. Over the next few weeks, Ing Podcast will be spending some time remembering MJ Sharp, a Mennonite peacebuilder who was kidnapped and killed on a UN mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Today, we'll continue our conversation with Marshall King, author of the recent book, Disarmed, The Life and Legacy of Michael M.J. Sharp. And then we'll talk with Jason Garber, Rachel Jenner, and Clinton Miller, three of M.J.'s friends and classmates from his time at Eastern Mennonite University. Our conversation begins now. Join us as we journey together. Marshall, once again, thanks so much for continuing this journey with us here on Ing Podcast. Thanks, Ben. Um, one of the, the things that I'm compelled by is uh, the way that you start the second chapter of the book. And um, perhaps this is because I knew MJ and I remember uh, the mixture of both uh, deep academic uh, engagement and also a look of being completely bored in certain college classes <laughs> and the, the bouncing between those two spaces. But I, I love the way that you talk about MJ as both... Um, really exemplifying what it means to be an Anabaptist or a Mennonite. And on the other hand, just being so outside of the box and the way that the book kind of swings on the pendulum between those two spaces. I'm wondering um, how you think of it with a book sort of now complete. Do you hold MJ up as uh, uh, someone that um, that people from this peace church tradition should uh, strive to be like? Uh, do you think he's just too far beyond <laughs> the norm for, for us to try and embody? Or where do you fall uh, in terms of him and, and who he was? I mean, I don't, I don't think many of us are like MJ in terms of mm. intelligence or daring, but also even emotional intelligence and willingness and availability to other people. Mm-hmm. Like even in junior high and high school, like uh, there are some stories in the book about how he was present with people yeah. in some remarkable ways. And the number of people who felt like he was one of their best friends is just remarkable. Hmm. And I think that's a testament to how present he was with so many people in this world, uh, around the world. Yeah, Not all of us are going to charge into the world the way MJ did. I think all of us can assess what is it that we believe and what does that mean for how I live my daily life? Hmm. And I don't know that MJ was even necessarily, you know, framing the question exactly that way, but his peacemaking work became his vocation and his passion. It's something that he had the academic credentials from his graduate degree in Germany and his work in a variety of settings around the world. But it also just became something that he was gifted at. And he was one of those few people in the world doing it quite that way. I mean, I think it's safe to put him in the same category, um, a younger version to be sure, but at the same category of John Paul Lederach and the late Phil Thomas and, you know, perhaps Vernon Jancy and um, Titus Peachy and, and um, Joseph Lichty and, and others. I mean, there would be women in that group too, who are doing this remarkable work of peace building and peace making in the world. 
and MJ did that work. And so, you know, we had, as Mennonites, we often admire people like John Paul Lederach and those who do this remarkable peace work, you know, peace building in the world. Yes, we should. We should listen to them. We should um, read their books. We should see what they have to tell us. But then we should also ask ourselves, like, how do I do this in my neighborhood? How do I do this with my family? And that's part of where this project came for me. Like I didn't want to preach too much in the book, but that's really kind of what I hope when people get to the end of the book they're that's what they're asking themselves. Mm. Yeah. It makes me think of um, the origins of the, the Christian peacemaker teams movement. So the legend goes, I guess, is that um, in the early eighties, Ron Sider challenged a large group of Mennonites to have the same peacekeeping commitment nonviolently that uh, so many uh, Americans have for uh, a military uh, engagement, even if we are not willing to put ourselves in harm's way to ask ourselves what that means as we try and navigate the world. You asked about MJ, you know, kind of was he this, you know, the consummate Mennonite? Yes and no. Hmm. Like he came from this Mennonite background. He embodied in some ways the 500 years of history that his father knows so well and that he had learned in many ways of the Anabaptist martyrs, of the people who had put their lives at risk, of um, people who were willing to make those those choices for peace in the world. Um, I mean, his senior research project at EMU was looking at Mennonites in the Shenandoah Valley and how they, how what it meant for the Confederacy when the civil war happened mm. and that was complicated. Yeah. He was more interested in the work than, um, than, but it, but there's not one way to do it. Like yeah. he chose a different path than, than Christian peacemaker teams. He liked, um, craft beer and Jameson whiskey more than some Mennonites. Mm-hmm. He played poker, yep. <laughs> um, which is a pastime of many of us at our Mennonite colleges. I mean, I yeah. played a lot of poker when I was at EMU. I know you did too. I mean, that was how you and I got introduced was you wrote a piece, I think, for at the time, the Mennonite about having the poker chips that had initially been MJ's. You know, so it looks different in the 21st century as we all figure this out and as we are part of the world. And one of the comments from one of the folks I interviewed for the book um, who with MJ wrestled with how to be how to work for the state or how to be Mennonite in this world, I mean, this person said, um, MJ was in the world, but not of the world, mm. but in the world. Hmm. And, and I keep going back to that because that's, that's what, that's where many of us are. And so then how do we, how do we do this? Yes. It's a long way from the silent in the land, the sort of like Amish, Amish light, uh, Mennonites who were, you know, completely separate and, and cut off, um, to some of those things that you just named. Um, and I think that helps those of us who perhaps carry some survivor guilt. Uh, I, I also lost a high school friend who was teaching in um, a remote indigenous village in on, uh, Ontario, way far up in northern Ontario. He, he was killed in a school shooting. And um, in a very similar way to MJ, was willing to go where few people were willing to go to put himself potentially at higher risk than some of his other peers teaching in wealthy uh, uh, suburban school districts uh, because he felt called to that. And 
And I think there are days where some of us wake up and think, have I done enough or am I doing enough? Am I living enough like MJ did uh, with enough willingness to, um, to live with some more vulnerability? And uh, I, I'm guessing that he would be glad we're having that conversation. I don't think he'd be wanting to pile any additional guilt on us, but just to be having that uh, conversation uh, over a craft beer or around a poker table, I think would bring a joy to his face to, to just be trying to wrestle with what that means for us. Well said. I think you're right. I, and I'm glad to hear you say, I think MJ would like that because there is this whole, like, it's an odd thing to write a book about a person after their death when you're pretty sure they didn't expect someone to be doing that. Yeah. And there's this whole discussion about whether he would have wanted that. Mm -hmm. And yet the story matters and has power and is getting told in other ways um, and so I think it is, I thought, I thought it was valuable and important to document this story of a modern Anabaptist, uh, yeah. modern Mennonite and how he did this work in the world. MJ was an amazing guy, a fascinating guy. Um, and I think his life has lessons to teach us. Um, it's just tragic that we have to do it in this way, yeah. uh, following his death. Yeah. Marshall, thanks again for putting these words on paper and for creating this incredible book. After the break, we'll begin a conversation with Jason Garber, Rachel Jenner, and Clinton Miller, three of MJ's friends and classmates from Eastern Mennonite University. Thanks, Ben. We'd like to thank John and Wanda Zimmerly of Rittman, Ohio, for being generous donors to Menno Media. John and Wanda are part of Menno Media's 2022 Provident Giving Society, a group of generous supporters who provide foundational resources so Menno Media can always pursue mission over profit in a very competitive publishing environment. If you enjoy the content provided by Ink Podcasts and other Menno Media materials, please consider donating and supporting our work today at www.menomedia/donate. Today's episode is brought to you in part by two graduate programs at Eastern Mennonite University. The Center for Justice and Peacebuilding and Eastern Mennonite Seminary offer graduate degrees, certificates, and other professional development opportunities. Join us to expand your skills, challenge your mind, and feed your spirit. Eastern Mennonite Seminary is grounded in the Anabaptist values of community, service, sustainability, peacebuilding, and discipleship. We invite you to participate in God's movement and discern together how to lead communities to embody Christ in the world. At the Center for Justice and Peacebuilding, you will learn with people working towards a more just and less violent world. You will become adept at interrogating systems, understanding the causes of violence and injustice, and responding to them. Learn more about how we can be a part of your journey by visiting emu.edu ing. Thank you so much for continuing this journey with us as we remember the life and legacy of Michael M.J. Sharp. I'm really excited to be sitting down with three of my classmates from Eastern Mennonite University. All of us knew M.J. as a student. 
why don't you take turns introducing yourself and however you want to describe yourself to our listening audience. My name's Clinton Miller. I met MJ in college. We were roommates uh, for a period of time. We also did chapels together. We would do chapel presentations and uh, announcements. We, we had a lot of good times together. My name is Rachel Jenner. I was Rachel Swarthendruber when I met MJ. Uh, I... I mean, I would imagine the first time we actually met was in Roselawn. I think we all lived in Roselawn together, the dorm that nobody else wanted to be in. Uh, <laughs> and we all were there. Roselawn, I was on Roselawn third. You all were on Roselawn second. And then we had a class together. Uh, I was there because of social work. He was there because of his pre-law stuff. And neither of us, I think, were particularly fond of the professor. And I think bonded over that. <laughs> I can see That's that. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. I'm Jason Garber. I was uh, MJ's roommate freshman year. Um, I lived next door to him sophomore year. And so we were friends throughout college. Um, so yeah, met because of the housing lottery, right? And uh, we were a great match. I, I can't imagine, you know, having lived with anyone uh, but MJ that that first year, so we kind of by default would do stuff together. I think uh, that first weekend there was um, like they took all the freshmen over to the bullpen, which was you know back when there was sort of that JMU go kart track and mini golf, and so that was fun. So we we're just like you know meeting random people because nobody knew anybody. <laughs> It's so maybe a good place to start with that initial impression of this this person. Um, I I think I had the privilege of getting to know him in first year seminar, first year experience, I think is what it was called, mm -hmm. a one credit hour class. Um, and he had this like ability to seem bored most of the time as like, <laughs> what am I doing here in a one credit hour class? But whenever he would talk, it would be like some of the most profound and brilliant things that any of us were saying as we were all sort of like shy, awkward, embarrassed, brand new college students, um, completely distant and fully present at the same time. And um, it was sort of in that space that I got to know this this guy. I was going to say, I think, uh, Ben, I, I have a vi like a visual in my head, I think also because of what you describe, like MJ was really good at observing for a while. And then I always feel like he would at some point decide that he had something to say. He had this way he would just sit and his foot would always be going like a million miles an hour as he like crossed <laughs> it over. Right. But he also would be like, I don't know, he would say some statement and then he would lay back, like, like lean back in his chair and then like twiddle his thumbs or do his, like, I don't know. He had several like pencil tricks that he did. Like Jason knows these things, right? Oh, like yeah. Jason and Clinton, you both live with him, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. But like, I was just like, who is <laughs> like, what, what? I just remember, especially because again, Roseland was one of those places that it seemed like not the outcast dorm, but yeah. it's just definitely not where everybody else was yeah. on the center of campus. You were just kind of, there and it was like well what are the boys on second doing and so you just kind of like meander around and find your people <laughs> that pretty much sums up exactly how i met mj it, it was in a creative writing class and we had to like present what we had written and i, I presented something that i thought was kind of clever and he was sitting there in the corner and then he sort of picked it apart not like in a uh 
mean or cruel way, but just sort of skewered it and, and was spot on. And that's how I got to know him. And I don't know, you could just tell he was a smart guy. Mm-hmm. And you, as you spoke with him, got to know him, you quickly learned he was also a mischievous guy. Yeah. And something about that um, really drew me in and, and, and we became friends. My assumption was he would change the world, that he would go out beyond this small uh, college in the Shenandoah Valley and and make a difference out there in the world. I really enjoyed reading this book because it gave me so much more insight into his life. You know, I think after college, we kind of, um, you know, went our separate ways. Neither of us very good at keeping in touch. And I, I, you know, I kind of knew where he was generally in the world. <laughs> Sometimes MJ would just turn up. Like um, one time I was working at Rosetta Stone and like 8.30 in the morning, MJ shows up on my doorstep and uh, <laughs> says, uh, oh, hey, I'm back in town. I'm like, oh, gr- great to know. Um, I have to go to work, but, you know, you're welcome to crash here. Stay here. Yeah, yeah, I've been up. Can I, you know, just use your computer? I was like, sure, you know, whatever. And so. I went away to work and I came home at the end of the day and he was still sitting in my bedroom with all the shades drawn, no lights on in the dark playing poker. Like, Oh, Hey, how was your day? Uh, pretty good. Uh, made 500 bucks. So I'm taking you out to dinner. Oh, and I owe you, I owe you a loaf of bread. I ate your whole loaf of bread. <laughs> we actually fell into this pattern of like, we saw each other all the time through freshman and sophomore year, like almost nonstop. Right. And then junior and senior year, we saw each other, you know, here and there doing weathering stuff. And then he was always the person, especially through, because I don't remember exactly when he left for Germany, but like I needed a car and I was like, I don't know who else to call. Like, I literally don't know. There's nobody else in my life I know who to call for a car to like to help me buy a car. And so, like, I was like, well, clearly MJ needs to be the one. Yeah. So, like, (laughs) I remember him, right? So MJ and I went to test drive a car, and he just was insistent that I take it up to a particular speed. I don't remember what it was on the interstate. And he's, like, up in the ceiling, down on the floor, listening for every (laughs) possible thing that could be (laughs) happening. And he finally declares the car fit to be bought, and the car was bought. So, and then of course, Jason, we went to Dave's Taverna, but, um, (laughs) yeah, of course, but yeah, I think it just kind of continued like that. Like there would be random things that we did together and I saw him with Andrew, my husband, Mm -hmm. um, when he was back from Germany, I think doing some fundraising maybe, Mm Mm-hmm. So we went to hear him talk, and then I actually saw him the very last time I saw him was right before he moved to Congo the first time. Mm. Yep. When you were with him, he, he was very present, and it was intense, right? It, it was just all um, you know, focused on being there and with you. And, and then when he wasn't there, you know, he wasn't. So it was, uh, I can imagine, and I observed, you know, your, your relationship those first couple of years was yeah very intense very yeah it fits that uh, it was intense and then you know he was away and and post-college it it was cool in the book just to learn all about that because yeah I, I don't think I even saw him after he went to the DRC um even with MCC 
I visited MJ in Indiana when he was living with his parents briefly right after college and then visited him in Germany maybe a year or so later. And then I saw him once when he came back to visit. And then, yeah, we basically didn't keep in very good touch. Uh, I was no better than he was at, at that. So, <laughs> yeah, it, this was before cell phones, or at least before I had a cell phone. And just trying to connect with him, like with a pay phone, because our flights were all messed up. And finally got together and, um, yeah, learned a little bit. And I think I think Marshall goes into some of those stories about how he was um, working with soldiers and also playing poker with soldiers over there. And he had a secret motorcycle he wasn't supposed to have and all this stuff. So. <laughs> learned about all that and um yeah that, that, i think that was probably the last like quality time i spent with him and then you know just saw him a couple times after that mm-hmm. we talked sort of off mic before we began uh about this um feeling or sense from mj's mom that uh her child is now confined to a book and she knows him as so much more than that uh uh, we're all at different places of reading the book, but are there stories that you think um, kind of exemplify who he is that are not in the book that you really wish people would know to sort of get a fuller spectrum of of who he was and uh, and how he lived his life? There's the the pranks we could talk about and the extracurriculars that we did. Um, Rachel and I were with him in improv group. That was super fun. Uh, for I don't know a year or two, right? They're just college stories. Interesting the the people who were there <laughs> to remember, you know, what a guy he was. Thanks for bringing up improv. I I had forgotten that aspect of who he was. Um, a couple of people have said uh, that it wasn't so much that he lived his life with. Uh, uh, courageousness but that he had a willingness to walk through doors as they opened and i feel like you need that to be a good improv person like you see an opportunity you take that step forward um i especially as a college student never felt like i had that confidence or willingness to to be that bold or brave but uh it's interesting that that's that was something he chose to do something fairly vulnerable the improv was one that for me that i just I wanted people to know about him because I'm, I'm like, I just wanted people to know that that was something that he did and that by knowing those things, like just it, it, not that it, not that he's not a full person in the book, but like, it just is a different Mm -hmm. aspect to his personality. And I mean, Marshall said this, but like when, when we talk about like singing show tunes in the car, it's fairly important to note that there was no radio involved <laughs> because MJ's Porsche did not have a radio. So like MJ's love of Broadway was just like a little, I was fairly, I think, infatuated with him a lot. I was like, oh, somebody else likes Broadway as much <laughs> as I do. Like, <laughs> So like, you know, these kinds of things, it's like these, these other passions that he had, I'm like, these are such great, like, it's just like this other just like nugget of his personality, just like some of the stories that I read in the book that I was like, wow, I never knew that he did that. Um, I feel like I missed those because those were significant Mm -hmm, to me. Um. And, and for me, like the improv was significant. I would have not done improv had it not been for him being like, you're going to go do improv. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, you are. (laughs) 
But like I changed what I was doing in college because of Mm -hmm. him. So like for me, those, those things mattered more. Um, And so I think, I mean, I don't know if it was like you for this for you, Jason, but I think for a lot of us who were in improv, we did improv Mm -hmm. because of MJ. I don't know if I'd have the courage. Like he, he was just so comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, and yes. making other people yeah. feel uncomfortable to hilarious effects. And both of us, I think got yeah. the brunt of that quite a bit. And just putting <laughs> stuff out there and letting it hang and, you know, seeing how other people react. It was, it was an amazing gift yeah. of his. And he was very creative and, and hilarious in improv. Um, when I was living with him, we were studying late at night at a waffle house. Anyway, on the way home, um, it was cold. It was probably November. There was a little snow coming down, and there was a homeless guy on his bike. And MJ, we commented, man, he looks cold. And MJ said, let's take him home. And we did. And um, kind of that improvisation, that willingness to be uncomfortable, I think that sums up MJ. We, hmm. uh, I wouldn't have done that, certainly on my own. Um, but we did because MJ, MJ said we were going to do it, so we did. Uh, and we, yeah, we cooked him a meal, let him wash all his clothes, gave him a place to sleep and then sent him on his way. Uh, another story, this was, must've been freshman year. There was a hayride and we decided we were going to throw water balloons at the hayride because all our friends were on the hayride and we parked, we parked MJ's car at the halfway house that was up the hill across from the seminary. Uh Uh-huh. And went, did our prank, had a good time, went back to get in his car and it was locked. He had left the keys in there. And the lady who ran the halfway house basically had taken his keys, locked up the car and was threatening to call the cops. And he just talked his way out of it because he just could. Of course he did. Of course. I don't remember what he said, but it worked. It worked. (laughs) The, uh, Extent of his poker um, winning was something I was completely oblivious to. I knew that he was good enough to take my money when he'd play at our dining room table. Um, But I assumed that that was it, that like he would enter so casually play until he won and walk away. Like, I I think in my mind, that's that, that made him cool. But I think it was a way that he moved about the world in hearing you all talk. Um, you know, he'd give you enough of himself to to make you feel connected to him, and then he'd move on to the next thing. Um, and so, hearing these stories of like, you know, going down to Atlantic City, or you know, being on an army base and going and and winning money from the GIs that he was also counseling um, is really hilarious. And uh, uh, it's it's funny to me now. I, I hope he would get a kick out of this. That his poker chips, I guess, were not important him enough. To, to take to Germany or the Congo. And so they, they've moved with me at first out to California and then to Pennsylvania. And my kids still play with them as they're like uh, fun and games currency in the house is, uh, is MJ's poker chips. So uh, to know that there's this whole other part of, of him uh, makes me wonder maybe if, uh, if they need to be mailed around the country to people who knew other little slices of who he was and might want that little uh, token of remembrance of, of, of him. <laughs> And how he moved about the world. That's awesome. So I'm wondering about uh, legacy for a person like this, and um, 
what you think his his impact is on your life today. Uh, how does MJ's spirit live on in in who you are? As I read the book over the last few days, um, the parts that were really sad to me um, weren't really about his death. And part of that's probably because, you know, I had time to process that a few years ago um, when it happened. But for me, the most moving parts of the book were actually learning about the work that he was doing in the DRC and just the um, unspeakable tragedies that he had to sort of witness or, or observe shortly after they occurred, you know, and, and document and, um, his, his work as a UN observer, I don't, I, you know, I kind of knew it, especially, you know, at the time he went missing, I was like, Oh, okay, that's what he's doing. But I didn't really understand it. And I didn't understand what was in his reports. So I thought it was fantastic that Marshall, um, pulled that out and did the research to really give mm. the readers an understanding yeah. of what he was doing there and how dire the situation is because we don't hear about it in, in our press, uh, doesn't make the news. Um, and it's just kind of a, a rolling ongoing slow and steady tragedy. Um, and I, I know it's more complex than that and there's a lot more ebb and flow, but, um, I just gained, I think a lot more, um, respect for uh the seriousness and gravity of what mj was doing there and uh i know you know i couldn't do it most people couldn't do it it took a very special person to be able to do that kind of work um and yes to deal with the danger but i think also just to deal with the humanity and the tragedy um so i just i come away from reading the book with just so much more uh, respect for the person that he matured into. Because mm. let's be honest, none of us were, you know, we weren't mature people at 18, 19, 20, you know, it was, yeah. Yeah. Our, our college years were one thing, but 10 years after that, um, and for MJ having lived a few other places, got a master's degree, had, you know, many, many more relationships uh, with other people around the world. You know, he had, he had really found his, his niche, his way of, of contributing to the world in a profound way, in a way that most people don't over a whole full lifetime. You know, he really did in um, just a few short years. I don't know if I would have ended up with the career that I started in had I not been dating MJ. Mm-hmm. Because he was 100% instrumental in pushing me to be like, if you're not happy here, go talk to this person. He was the one who sent me to talk to Judy Mullet, who is talked about many, many times in the book. Um, he was the one who encouraged me to do improv. And I don't know. I, I mean, I just don't know if I would have, maybe I would have done those things without him, but I hadn't to that point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and so for me, like that truly changed what I was doing and I can without a doubt say that, uh, I rely on the skills that I gained in improv (laughs) (laughs) and, uh, continued doing improv even like beyond college and have applied those skills like in education (laughs) and as a presenter more times than I can count. 
And I think, again, like with that, that continual idea of like, if you're not, if this is not sitting right with you, if it's not feeling right to you in your gut, go find something and go ask more questions and find something that is. So that's like one thing. But then the additional piece, the way that MJ listened to people, and I think we all, especially now that the uh, political climate just is insanely polarized and everything is this side or that side, and you're either with me or you're against me, you know, every single day you you hear people talking about these things and and it feels very when you're when you're in a situation and you're like, why <laughs> like how can I even begin to listen to somebody who's just being such a jerk? <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. well, I guess um they're not holding a rifle. <laughs> that's a start, right? Like, yeah. you know, and I think that's, I think my biggest thing is kind of taking that example and like small scaling it or maybe right sizing my conflict, you know, and saying, and t- taking that example. And I do believe in listening and saying, if, if MJ could do that there, then I can take this small step here to listen to somebody, to hear their perspective, and then to try to make peace here. It doesn't take me going to Congo or me going to somewhere else where there's somebody holding a gun, perhaps to make peace where you are. And I think just, yeah, whatever that quote is, you can always listen. You can always listen to where somebody's coming from and try to hear their perspective. Yeah. Our American um, arrogance likes to think that the problems are over there somewhere else. Like, Oh, you got to go to the Congo to really get serious about things. And um, we forget that, we have just as messy or complicated of a country situation here uh, that requires us to sometimes just listen. Yeah, I love that. Um, he really was the catalyst for so many things and was good at, you know, rounding up a group of people with a vision. Well, he had the vision and he figured out who the players were. <laughs> Usually I was the, you know, tech support. <laughs> you will implement my vision. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so I bought a thousand Dixie cups. What should we do with this? And he didn't always have, you know, like it all figured out. Maybe he'd done a lot of thinking, but maybe he was just, you know, had the kernel of an idea and he, he needed to, you know, bounce ideas off of it, uh, other people and have other people help him develop the idea. But, you know, we, we come up with something pretty good and, um, yeah, anyway, he was always good at, at getting a group together to do something, even if it was you know, silly and, and so forth. MJ was an interesting, complicated person. And I'm really lucky that I got to meet him. Really grateful for that. And I'm really grateful that other people get to learn about him too. I think he's a good example of a refreshing, different approach to life. And, you know, just in this conversation, you know, we've seen so much of that. So well, thank you all for your willingness. Um, and we were saying before we began that we, we didn't assume when we were college students that there'd be a book written about one of us. So <laughs> relatively close to graduation. Um, it's sad in some ways that it is because of the loss of life um, of someone so uh, brilliant and talented. Um, uh, I think it's also quite beautiful to... Um, to hold up this life with lived so well and to um, uh, 
to continue to be reminded of that. And uh, thank you for being a part of, of sharing that story. Thank you for taking us beyond the pages of this book too and reminding us that he was so much more than just uh, what is compiled there in those pages. I'm grateful that Marshall um, you know, painted a picture of MJ's life. I uh, got to learn so much more about him, about this person I thought I knew. You know, got to learn other aspects of his life and um, have some insight into the, you know, the post-college, more mature MJ. Um, and it was very satisfying to feel like he hit his stride, like he finally found work that was important enough to engage his <laughs> intellect. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, and did a lot of good in the world. Yeah, school was never important enough for him to fully engage. So. That's a good yeah. final word. Thank you all so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben, for organizing us. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. The new book, Disarmed, The Life and Legacy of Michael M.J. Sharp, is available now wherever you order books. And our journey continues next week. We'll wrap up our conversation with Marshall King and talk with David Nyeringabo, a peace worker from the Democratic Republic of Congo and one of the first recipients of the MJ Sharp Scholarship at Eastern Mennonite University. As always, we'd like to thank our guests and all who support Ng Podcast. Thank you for joining us on the journey. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review in your favorite podcasting app. And if you have something to share, send us a message at theing at menomedia.org or by leaving us a voicemail. Ing Podcast is hosted by Reverend Allison Moss and Reverend Dr. Dennis Edwards and produced by me, Ben Weidman. Views and opinions expressed on Ing Podcast are those of our hosts and guests and may not represent that of Leader Magazine or Menomedia. Ing Podcast is a production of Menomedia a nonprofit publisher that creates thoughtful Anabaptist resources to enrich faith in a complex world. To find out more, visit us online at menomedia.org.